On this show, we obviously talk a lot about complex systems. But it's a really interesting thing to contrast the difference between a complex system and a complicated system. So what's a complicated system? Well, a complicated system is essentially a system that we can break down to its component parts. And by understanding those parts, we can actually understand the system and we can predict what the system will do. But this is not the case for complex systems, because we know in complex systems, the behavior of the system is really driven by not only the parts of that system, but the interactions between those parts. In other words, a complex system is the sum of its parts and their interactions. And it's these interactions that give us this, what we call emergent behavior that you'll have heard many times about on the show. And this emergent behavior is usually behavior that wasn't designed into the system. And it's behavior that can be quite unusual and unexpected as well. Now, a really interesting example of a complication, a complex system is the tax system. So governments design systems to collect tax, and these systems are typically complicated systems. There's lots of rules, and they're designed to be followed. The interesting thing is when these tax systems get out in the wild among us and among tax accountants is people find loopholes. People find that they can get these loopholes, they can game the system, and they can minimize their tax. So suddenly we've turned a complicated system into a complex system where the emergent behavior is essentially tax avoidance or tax minimization. The good news is it turns out the tax system is robust enough in most countries to deal with this. And anyway, the tax department expect that people will try and game the system and they tend to go in and try and close off all these loopholes. But it turns out this sort of thing happens on economic models and economic policies that are not near as robust as the tax system. So on the show today, we're joined again by W. Brian Arthur. Brian's an external professor at the Santa Fe Institute and researcher at the Palo Alto Research Center. Brian's no stranger to the show. He's been on it a couple of times before. He's talked about the Santa Fe Institute in the early days. He's talked about the economy. He's talked about his al for al problem. And today he's going to talk about the different ways people game economic policy. And he's going to ask what economics can do about this issue. This is Simplifying Complexity, a podcast where we explore the underlying principles of complex systems. Systems that seem to defy our rational view of the world, like economies, ecologies, or even you or me. I'm forensic engineer Sean Brady, and I'll be your host. Brian Arthur, welcome back on the show. Delighted to be back. Brian, we've talked about your career. We've talked about many different things you've done. Today, we're going to talk about a topic that you're really passionate about, which is how systems get gamed by agents in the system, what that can result in, and what can we do to stop it. And you're particularly going to talk about economics. So what do you mean when you say a system gets gamed? I mean that very often some players or human beings manage to get into some system, maybe some policy system, and use it to their own profit, use it to their own ends. Sometimes they do that with a lot of malice of forethought and they're quite cynical about it. Other times they didn't mean to take over the system, so to speak. But one way or the other, I'm fascinated by the ability of human beings 
to look at a system, find ways to exploit it to their own ends. So think of people a little bit sometimes as like viruses. Virus can get into your system or mine and manipulate the replication system, the cellular system, to its own ends. And we're looking at the equivalent of that in economics. So fundamentally, why are you interested in this? Yeah, around about 2010, which is a while back, I was working for IBM in Almaden, California. And this was quite soon after the disastrous crash we had in 2007, 2008. Everybody, whether they were economists or not, was very conscious that you could get a financial collapse. People were trying to make sense of the financial collapse. IBM asked me to write something on this. So I started to look into the 2008 financial collapse and think about that. And then I began to realize something else or a couple of other things. I realized that many, many parts of engineering in particular and medicine had got safer over the last 50 years. And certainly I would say that building safety, airline safety has got measurably much safer than it was, say, 50, 60 years ago. Seismic safety, I live in an earthquake zone, that's got a lot safer. Food and pharmaceuticals have got a lot safer. Surgery and medicine has got an awful lot safer. And in a way, I began to realize that the economy itself and economics has figured out a lot of things that have made us safer. You can, over many years, maybe 100 years more, economics has figured out how to regulate currencies, how to set up banking properly, how to do central banking, how to regulate monetary policy, how to regulate antitrust policy, monopolies and things like that. But the one area that economics has not got safer in is financial collapses. If anything, these have got worse because economies are even more interconnected than before. So the earthquakes and the economy have not got any safer, if anything, they've got larger. And I was very concerned with this, as we all were around 2008, 2010, and started to look into this. And is that where the interest in the gaming came from? Well, yeah, I began to realize that when I started to look at that, it was clear that there were Financial collapses happened for quite different reasons, but they all had one thing in common. They did extreme damage to people. You can have an earthquake, and where I'm talking from California, that can have a bad enough circumstances, maybe several thousand people get killed. But with a financial collapse, it could be millions of people are affected. There's a financial collapse in the Soviet Union when it became Russia, 1990 or so. And you could see the results of that collapse in the mortality statistics in Russia for the next 10 or 15 years, that act of turning over and becoming a capitalist economy basically collapsed the system for several years and the Russian economy just caved in and it took 10 or 15 years to recover. And some people were literally 
starving in the meantime. So these financial disasters affect millions of people. And yet, as economists, we haven't looked terribly seriously at them. And why is that? Why, if so many other areas of economics have got safer, why is there this uh, Achilles heel with these big collapses? That's a great question. I don't want to be cynical myself, but I began to realize that economics, as I've said before, tends to examine everything at equilibrium. Now, an equilibrium in economics is highly particular. This is just by assumption or by definition. An equilibrium is something where we're all doing our bit individually. We're trading, we're going to markets, we're maybe trading foreign exchange. And if the outcome of all those individual behaviors gives us no incentive to change our behavior, that constitutes an equilibrium. So in equilibrium, to put it another way, nobody's got any incentive to change. That's by definition, or to do anything, it's just an equilibrium. If you assume that all systems are in equilibrium, then you will miss the idea that there are incentives for people to go in and do something to the system. So it's a bit like saying, we will uh, regard human medicine, the bodies we're looking at, the organism, as being fundamentally in health. That would rule out looking at disease, because if you assume it's in health and all systems are balanced, (laughs) then you will not be looking for anything to go wrong. So I'm saying there's a bias in economics to look at systems where nobody can improve their position. And is that a bit like saying that when a new policy, a new economic policy is put out, or a policy that has economic ramifications, that economists are not necessarily saying, okay, let's figure out how this is going to fail. Let's think up all the different ways it's going to fail, or let's think up all the different ways it's going to be gamed. Is there an inherent assumption that when we roll this out, it will pretty much work the way we believe it's going to work and achieve the results we believe it's going to achieve. I think you're absolutely right in what you're saying. I wouldn't call it an assumption that everything's going to work. I would just say it's a bias towards saying we can have quite a complicated set of policies, like Obamacare, for example, I think was proposed around 2010, a new health system for all of the United States. And you think the economics through And you get experts to corroborate that all of this is fine. And then you assume it's going to work and things will be in equilibrium. In particular, the habit in economics is not to say, once the system is working, can somebody get a screwdriver and tap into the system and exploit it? Again, let me give you another example. I'm an engineer like you by background. And I like engineering examples. It's a bit like saying, okay, we will construct a new electricity delivery system for an entire region. It might be in Nigeria or somewhere. And we will think of the engineering. We'll set all of this up very carefully with transmission lines and transforming transformers and power stations. And that's fine. What we don't look for is that going through some remote area and people 
being able to tap into it to exploit the electricity and get it for free. So it's just not a habit in economics to say how can things be exploited if your initial assumption is saying we assume everything's in equilibrium, therefore nobody's got any incentive to do anything different than they're doing. And it is the classic example of this in a very general sense, Brian, the tax system. You know, we, we design our tax laws to work in a very Newtonian way. And, and then people work out, oh, yeah, but if I do things like this, it's technically not illegal, but I pay less tax. So therefore, that's to my benefit. Is that the sort of gaming you're talking about here? Not quite, uh, simply because there's been an awful lot of the tax authorities, at least in America or in Britain, for example, and no doubt in Australia, are very well used to people exploiting the system. And they know all the dodges and they know many of the things. So it is a valid example, but there is plenty of theory and experience with how people can manipulate a system like that. I'd say, though, if you come up with something, for example, in 2006, Massachusetts, the state in northeast of the U.S., came up with public health care system under Mitt Romney, who was governor at the time, and that worked quite well for a few months. You had to pay into that system, but if you paid some money, you could buy yourself out of it. So an awful lot of people bought themselves out of it. And then when they foresaw that they were going to get a knee operation or some sort of fertility treatment over many months, and this would be expensive, then they purchased the insurance. So that system got gamed and lost an awful lot of money because it was getting heavily used by people who knew that they needed it for a certain time. So I was very interested in systems that were exploited to the degree that they would collapse. That doesn't happen in the tax system. They make enough money from most of us that the small minority who does exploit it doesn't kill the tax system. I'm more interested in things that cause fatal collapse. And that's what brings it back, isn't it, to the your interest in financial crashes. And that's why we should care about gaming and systems, because they have the ability to really damage these systems. Yes, absolutely. In particular, I got interested in the 2008 crash. So let me give you a couple of examples from that. Um, I began to learn that Wall Street and large firms were able to figure out, don't forget this was the era of making loans for mortgage and these loans were not that heavily examined and they were able to be sold indirectly on the market as securities and uh, without kind of being properly examined. So it's a bit like saying we're selling aircraft, but we're not examining just exactly how those aircraft have been put together or whether they're safe or not. And I started to look at a lot of the evidence for the 2008 crash and came up with some really interesting examples of exploitation. Here's one. Some of the firms on Wall Street got very cozy with the ratings authorities at Standard & Poor's, Moody's, and so on. The larger ratings authorities competed 
to do ratings for these big Wall Street firms, say like Goldman Sachs and others. So the ratings companies got very cozy with the people who were coming up with all these fancy new um, derivative mortgage-based securities and were issuing and selling those securities. Now, if the derivatives companies were doing their job not in any involved way, but impassionate. The ratings companies, yep. Yeah, if the ratings companies were doing their job properly, they would just take in the proposal for a new type of security. They'd rate that. Then they would go back to the Wall Street firm that was paying for this and say, nope, doesn't pass, sorry. Or this is okay, but it looks unsafe. So this is, again, like aircraft manufacturers uh, having a non-independent rater of just how good your airplane is. What happened was the ratings companies got cozy with the Wall Street firms that were bringing up these exotic types of products, and the Wall Street firms managed to um, persuade the rating company to give them their algorithm their computer algorithms that tested the new product, and the ratings companies complied. So they knew the rules of the game, essentially. So then these large firms like Goldman uh, knew the rules of the game. They knew how these exotic products, they knew exactly how they were going to be rated, and they might have a product that didn't look very steady or safe, but they could tweak the product until it passed the rating algorithm that they had a copy of, and then they'd send it to the ratings agency who said, lo and behold, this thing's okay. So they were getting fabulous AAA ratings from four uh, proposals that were not sound at all. And I've read some of your writing on this, Brian, where you talk about that you have these ratings and then people, you know, as you've just said there, you have the people tailor their behavior. And the minute you have a rating to measure behavior and you're rewarded for gaming that rating, that's exactly what people will do. They'll game the rating to their benefit and it ceases to become a good measure then as a rating because it's been gamed. That's right. It's been gamed. And I'll give another example. I was associated with a very large university. It wasn't in the US. And I became curious because this very large university, and I won't give a name here, the very large university had been rated as being whatever, 265th best university in the world. And in the time I was looking at all of this over several years, the university managed to get itself rated as 13th best in the world, ahead of Princeton and Yale and places like that. And I sat down and I thought, how could that happen? And I began to realize that nothing, their employees, the faculty hadn't changed, the types of students hadn't changed, the type of research hadn't changed, type of teaching hadn't changed, yet they'd risen to be very high in their ratings. So I began to become suspicious that the criterion for rating universities, the algorithm, if you like, was getting gamed. I won't say publicly that it was, but let's assume this sort of thing happens more generally. 
And I remember somebody saying, well, part of the rating is how many papers have the scientists at the university published in journals, science and nature. You can't game that, can you? And then I did realize that, of course, you can game that. If I write a paper in nature, I can put your name on it. So now we have two people at the university publishing as a collaborator of mine. So then there's two people or maybe 25 people publishing in nature. So just about everything at a university can be gamed. And any system that's rating things, be rating government departments, can be gamed. There's a famous law, uh, it's known as Goodhart's Law, but it basically says any performance criteria <laughs> you apply, whether it's to horse racing or crimes per thousand or medical outcomes or government budgets, will be gamed against. And that's uh, from that I got my title, All Systems Will Be Gamed. And in your writing on this, you talk about sort of four ways systems are gamed. You know, one of them is what we've spent quite a bit of time talking about, tailored behavior to conform to performance criteria. The other is use of asymmetric information. What's that? Well, sometimes the average person who's maybe in a market just has average information but sometimes people are on the inside and they know far more information about the system, yet everything's being sold and traded publicly. So you can get things like insider trading. I have detailed knowledge of what's going to happen in the firm whose stock I'm trading in, but other people don't have that. and So that's certainly one cause of making a lot of money. I could give many examples, but I'll keep this a bit briefer. Tailoring behavior to conform to some judgment criteria and I've covered. Taking partial control of a system. Yes, what's this one? Number three. That's a bit like this virus example I mentioned. I got particularly interested in a financial collapse that happened in Iceland. I think it was in October 2008. People woke up one morning. There are three banks in Iceland. There are just three banks. They're all owned by earlier by the state. And they, anybody with money in one of those three banks, which was all Icelanders, woke up one morning in October 2008. And their holdings were zero. At least they were zeroed out. They had no access to their funds. So the whole banking system collapsed. What I found was classic example of exploiting or gaming the system. A few years earlier, Iceland had controlled its banks. So the banks were controlled by the government. Somebody had got the brilliant idea that markets were marvelous and that private people could own these banks or have a majority share in the banks. This was the era, don't forget, of kind of Reagan type of economics, uh, neoliberalism, whatever you want to call it, that the markets would always correct anything. So a bunch of very young entrepreneurs in Iceland that had been trained with MBAs in the US came back to Iceland, borrowed money, um, leveraged those borrowings to borrow yet more money and bought commanding share, a controlling share of the three banks. They took 
people's deposits from those banks and then uh, gambled or, let's say, invested public's money in um, dodgy property deals, mostly in the UK and uh, some in the US. This was the time of subprime mortgage loans and strange products like that. Those markets collapsed, therefore the banks collapsed, therefore people's deposits suddenly disappeared. So it was again like a virus taking over an entire organism and the organism dies, like the early days of COVID. Um, why didn't economists see that? There, some actually did and went to Iceland and warned against this. So there are examples uh, of really smart economists seeing that this was the train was about to run off the rails. But in the event, there wasn't enough voice. The Iceland banks were able to say, well, this is a really good economic policy or the government that we privatize our banks. We allow them to be owned by third parties. But it's never a good idea, I think, to allow private interests to take over a, a large system like that. And then the last one, Brian, is using system elements not in a way intended by the system designers. <laughs> My example of that is that in the 1970s, anyway, petrol, gasoline became very, very expensive. And the United States Senate and government decided that they would start to heavily tax cars, gasoline. In due course, the government gave exceptions to light trucks, so lorries and things didn't need to pay so much tax. Immediately, the car manufacturers declared that what we call SUVs, four-wheel drives, were really trucks. And immediately, everybody started to buy SUVs and trucks, or SUVs and four-wheel drives. And so to this day, I can look out the window here, and about half the cars on the road are sports utility vehicles. It turned out that a perfectly reasonable law had been passed to keep gas guzzlers off the streets, off the roads. But those gas guzzlers, many, a whole class of gas guzzlers got through on a redefinition. They got through on a, a kind of a loophole that they were really trucks. And nobody benefited, at least the, that gasoline tax backfired. So when we take those four things and we take the sort of very serious consequences you can get in a system, particularly an economic system, because of them. What can economics do about it, Brian? Here I want to go back to my engineering background, which is very similar to yours. I know that you're an expert on failure mode analysis. Uh, you probably have a better phrase for that. But whether you're looking at mining or whether you're looking at certain civil engineering structures, there's a forensic science of what happens. So a bridge collapses, and this happens with some regularity. When a bridge collapses, people don't say tut-tut and walk away. There is a forensic science of failure modes in civil engineering, in any sort of engineering, and mining engineering, where a collapse or a disaster, when that goes wrong, it is looked at for months and months. I think this is why it's a great deal safer now to travel by airplane. I got some statistics on that. 
it's safer by orders of magnitude to get on an airplane these days than it was in the 1950s. And that's because any time a disaster happens, engineers are all over it, forensic engineers. It is quizzed, it is queried, it is brought to court. There are disaster analysis teams. The manufacturer wants to know what's wrong. Then uh, often they blame the pilots. The pilots have a strong interest in looking at whether it really was the pilots. Uh, Very often it's not. It's the engineering structure itself. So I would say what we do need in economics is forensic version of economics, a failure mode uh, subdiscipline of economics. What went wrong in the 2008 collapse? Well, obviously that was analyzed up and down, but this is not analyzed to the degree that it's actually taught in universities. It's not analyzed to the degree there's training in this. So that's a bit like training doctors with no pathology. You're not looking at how people died in the case of COVID. You're not looking in any great detail at all. Economists are well aware that financial systems collapse, that they can be exploited or gamed. I believe, from my judgment, there is not a rigorous branch of economics that looks at economic failures, and there should be. And also to make sure that those lessons we often see in engineering is the investigations are done, but do the lessons get really passed on and are they actioned upon? And do we keep in mind why those actions were necessary going into the future? We, in engineering, lose that piece as well, which is always a real, real issue, real challenge. Yeah, I think so. I mean, nothing's perfect, but I want to give a couple of examples or a couple of proposals, actually, for what economics could do. When we cook up a new policy system, say like Obamacare or the Massachusetts medical system, we construct computer models of that. This is routine in economics. Or when the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, bails out some country that's in trouble, Venezuela or someplace like that, it constructs a computer model of how that economy works. Now, if you're only looking for equilibrium and only looking for how would this thing work when it's working, you're not going to find much. My proposal, if we had a proper forensic branch of economics, would be to say, okay, you build your computer model. And it's a bit like proposing a new radically different design for an engineering structure, say the new Boeing 737 MAX 8. And I believe in engineering, there's a lot of thought, not always perfect, given to saying, okay, we're going to look at the design or the model for the design, and then we will test it, we'll stress test it. Is there a place it could easily collapse? We can do that in economics. We can even go a step further in economics and say we are building our agent-based model of how this policy system like Obamacare would work. And we are going to have some of the agents, uh, we will make them intelligent. 
maybe even artificially intelligent, and they can be probing and exploiting and experimenting to see if they can break the system. I was very conscious that when new coding systems, crypto-analytical systems, are proposed, it's standard practice, say, for the U.S. Navy to call a bunch of experts and say, we have this new crypto system or coding system. We invite you to try to break it. And it's great prestige if you can break a system like that. And often it does break, and so you have to then go back and redesign. This would be a modeling version of that. You can give a model or a design of a policy system in the economy to experts and invite them to say, how will that be gamed? You can actually look at the uh, at some computer model and you can build in agents who are experimenting with intelligent ways to exploit the system you're looking at. And in a kind of fantasy dream, not that far away, I think you can build generalized AI, artificial intelligent models, where the system, you can look at the system and say, oh, it has a certain weakness here or there. In 2003, the American military went into Iraq and Afghanistan, actually Afghanistan in particular, and Iraq shortly after that. And an AI system, a general AI, and this is still a bit fantasy, would be saying, how can that incursion into Iraq be challenged or exploited by counterparties, factions who don't want the Americans in there? If such a system had access to history, they would realize that the British in Iraq and Afghanistan and the Russians in Afghanistan and go back to Alexander the Great, probably, or none of them succeeded. And so you could build, a, again, a bit of a pipe dream, uh, an artificially in generalized artificial intelligence system that looked at analogies and history that looked at other things that had been gamed that were similar, and then brought those to bear to see if those particular, those historical intrusions might repeat in your system. So I think that there's all kinds of things we can do in the economy to look more critically at systems rather than just say we're building an equilibrium system. Oops. Uh, we blew it, uh, somebody's manipulated that system to our detriment, and we didn't expect that. There's a very famous incident where just after 2008, <laughs> the Queen was being briefed on the collapse, and she remarked just generally maybe to the journalists who were present, she said, I can't think why the economists didn't see this coming, some version of that. And yes, I think that was a perfectly sensible comment. But economists can see things coming. It's just that equilibrium-based systems will not be exploited by assumption. <laughs> it's like saying, assume we have a perfect system that can't be exploited. It's not cynical. In fact, if you take a complexity economics approach, you're basically saying that system is a bunch of human beings playing and challenging and reacting to the incentives that the system presents.
if we follow those incentives, is there any way they could cause collapse of the system? And sometimes there is. Often there is, all too often. And I would love to come back in 20 years if I live that long and find that economics is, if it is by then a non-equilibrium science, I would like to come back and find that economies are an awful lot safer than they used to be. W. Brian Arthur, thank you very much for being on the show. And thank you so much, Sean, for brilliant questioning and interviewing. Thanks for listening to Simplifying Complexity, where we look at the key concepts of complexity science with expert minds from across the world. Concepts like emergence, self-organization, adaptation, networks, scaling, tipping points, and much more. This podcast was produced by Brady Haywood and Wavelength Creative. To make sure you don't miss an episode, be sure to subscribe to or follow the show in your podcast app. I'm Sean Brady, and I'll see you in our next episode. 